Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. I have a very special guest here with me today. I have Brandon Merget. He is the founder and managing director of Modern Mindfulness. He also started the first mindfulness community in Shanghai, China, and today trains mindfulness teachers so that they can create a livelihood through this type of work. Brandon, thank you so much for being on the Zen Stoic Path. It is awesome to have you here, man. What's going on? Yeah. So I'm very curious. You started the first mindfulness community in China. Sounds like a pretty big deal. What inspired that? Yeah, uh, good question. You said you weren't going to plan any questions, man. That's I didn't like, plan that one. That was premeditated. <laughs> that was premeditated. Um, yeah, so I, I arrived in China 11 years ago in uh, Hangzhou, China. Mm-hmm. And I came to that country because of fear and philosophy. Mm. I wanted to face my fear of being alone. Mm-hmm. And, and finding myself philosophy. I wanted to go towards Eastern philosophies that I love. So that's what inspired me to go to that part of the world. And when I arrived in Hangzhou, I was at a, uh, by, by a lake uh, called the West Lake in mm-hmm. Hangzhou. Very beautiful lake, very, very famous in China. And I was sitting by the lake at this coffee shop and just totally by myself, I didn't know anybody in China. I could barely even speak Chinese. All I knew how to say was hello, um, what does it mean, and fried rice. That was, that was pretty much the... Seems like enough to get you by for the first few days. <laughs> yes. Yes, I was a very confused foreigner. Yes. Um, but sitting in the coffee shop, I saw a monk in the distance. And I got excited because I thought to myself, this is it. This is why I came to China. <laughs> He's going to give me my koan. Yes. He's going to give my secret question. And he saw me and I saw him. And then he started to wiggle his way to me and he made his path. And then he got right to me, He got right in my ear and put his hand up and said, money, 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 money. <laughs> I said, who the hell are you, man? Get away from me. Like, what is this bozo? Yes. So I left Hangzhou and I moved to uh, the beginning of the Himalayan mountains in Lijiang, China, mm-hmm. in the Yunnan province, just north of Laos. I stayed there for about four and a half years working on a, a blog, a very simple blog called Mind Management. Mm-hmm. And one of the aspects of the blog was meditation and wrote about stoicism, philosophy, travel, social dynamics, anything self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Four and a half years later, I asked myself the question, where's the fear? Hmm. That then brought me to Shanghai, China. I'm from a small town in Louisiana, population at the time, 10,000 people. Yes. So going to Shanghai scared the, am I, can I curse? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, scared, it scared the shit out of me. Uh, I really did just a lot of discomfort there. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to Shanghai. Yeah, like this is the place. This yeah. is where I face my fear. Yeah, this is where I got to go. Mm-hmm. This is what this is. This is the obstacle. This is this is what is standing in my way. So I arrived in Shanghai. First month sucked. Mm-hmm. It was really awful. Staying at my sister's friend's house. He was also there for a year. G- guy was batshit crazy I remember living an egg in yes. his uh, sink like a small fragment of an egg and he freaked out on me 
So I was like, trying to find a place to live mm-hmm. in Shanghai. Didn't know anybody except for, for the crazy Eggman. <laughs> the crazy Eggman. <laughs> That's and, a good name for him, Will. He'll henceforth be known as the crazy Eggman. <laughs> yeah. Well, the crazy Eggman, he pushed me to find my own place. Yes. And <laughs> he, uh, you know, he put a lot of stress on me, but I found my own place. And uh, my, my girlfriend helped me a lot at the time. Now she's my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and I then settled in Shanghai, China, which took me about two months to do. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, let's meet some people. Um, and I wanted to connect with other business owners. I wanted to connect with people who were making things happen. So I went to business networking events. I went to this like LinkedIn networking event and People kept asking me what what I do. I said, my name's Brandon. I'm from South Louisiana. I have a blog called Mind Management. And I talk about philosophy, meditation, stoicism. Nine times out of ten, people said, you talk about meditation. I said, yes. Then they asked me the question that changed my life. They said, could you teach me? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very happy to teach you. Mm-hmm. So the gentleman's name was Liam. I taught him for four hours for free. And then he told his friends. And their friends told their friends. And I taught as many people as I could. If, if you wanted to learn meditation, I was your guy. Mm-hmm. And I did it for free. I taught a 1,000 people for free yes. in one year. And that scaled up to becoming Shanghai's largest mindfulness community and formerly known as Shanghai mindfulness. If you Google Shanghai mindfulness, my name's going to pop up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it was twofold. One, it was, I was trying to make a community of really cool people that wanted to practice mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. and were into the things that I was also into. And two, I could not find mindfulness meditation teachers in China. Yes. I remember you're telling me this uh, when we met for lunch the other week about how meditation is in essence frowned upon there or not even allowed. Yeah. So I'm going to be really careful with my words because this is being recorded and I don't know how many people are going to listen to this, but I'm just a little bit of self filtering here. I went to the main temple in Mm -hmm. Shanghai, Jing'an temple. And I said, to the monks in Chinese, can you teach me Chinese? Mm-hmm. They went, boo, 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 boo. I mean, no, 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 no. Quite aggressively. Mm-hmm. We're going to have it. So they're not teaching meditation. They weren't interested in teaching meditation. And in the 1950s, Zen was washed out of China in the mm-hmm. Great Revolution. That's their fight. That's their country. Mm-hmm. I'm in America now. That was their choice. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is not Zen. Yes. It's, it's very different. It's a Western thing. And, and what we call it is modern mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And that's what we started teaching and spreading in Shanghai is Western scientifically backed mindfulness practices. Yes. Starting with being mindful of the fact that you're breathing and People were drinking it like water. Yeah. It was growing. They're, they're, they're thinking, where has this been? Like, what, what? This is familiar. Yeah. It was very, very, very fascinating. And it started growing. 
So I had that ability, I have this ability to grow communities mm -hmm. relatively fast. And, and then I asked myself the question, who has done this that I can model? Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I asked myself the question, who is, what is the most professional way of teaching meditation? Mm -hmm. And I then got a job with an organization called Potential Project, and they do corporate mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. We negotiated for about six months, and then they hired me full time, and then they taught me to portray mindfulness to Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, if I can portray mindfulness to individuals and Fortune 500 companies, that that's an excellent combination because not not only can I make a livelihood out of this, but I also have the ability to be versatile in my delivery. Yes, and we just kept growing it and growing it and growing it and having meetups. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the key with growing the community was offering free meetups. Interesting. Now th those meetups and in, 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 I'm always consulting mindfulness teachers. So, but if you're a coach out there or fellow consultant, um, you're probably going to resonate with what I'm, what I'm about to say. Those meetups were free, but, they had a 50% cancellation rate. Mm. So what we started doing was asking for a deposit. Yes. So it was 50 Chinese renminbi, and we still do, do this to today. To today. Mm -hmm. Pay 50 Chinese renminbi. When you show up, we'll give it back. Mm -hmm. So I was known as the guy of paying people to meditate. <laughs> it's an interesting concept. <laughs> they show up, they get their money back. <laughs> and people were showing up. Yes. And even that first year when I was teaching meditation... I was doing it for free. So our cancellation rates were 50%. Mm. When I started charging, it went down to 10%. Mm. So it was really, really fascinating, those two notions of perception of value and opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to value something because it's free. Right. Uh, it, it, it's so simple that it couldn't be helpful or it's, it's, uh, it's so good that it couldn't be true. And th they think that there's some sort of, for mindfulness practice, a lot of people think there's some sort of passage or, or, or payment that you need to make mm. to have this, this peace of mind, but it, it's actually available to you at, at any moment. Yeah. It's always there for you. Yeah, you can always into. tap into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I noticed that just in this world of personal development, when things are free or when they don't cost a lot, people become skeptical about them. It's like they don't allow themselves to, receive whatever this thing is especially when it's a free meetup like what you were doing unless they've they've contributed something or they've paid something into it mm -hmm. and it, it it's always really interesting because you could have the best stuff in the world but sometimes people will literally just stop themselves from being able to access it just because of that yep yeah totally so people really enjoyed the fact that we Offered the meetup for free, but mm -hmm. we're still going to hold our standard of excellence. And yes. if somebody wanted to come to this thing, sure, put down some money. And if you don't show up, you're going to lose the money. But if you show up, say, welcome, welcome. thank you for practicing mindfulness. Here's $10. <laughs> and that kind of baffled people. So that's how we started to grow the community up. And we kept it very, very simple. Also, another part of that was sharing content. Mm -hmm. consistently guided mindfulness exercises, uh, content that I, that I recorded via video all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that content started from just written content. Yes. And then evolved into audio and then video, 
it was actually kind of funny because I never uh, made videos before, mm -hmm. um, but I needed something to nourish the community and give them sort of some sort of content on a regular basis. Yes. I had this app. It was a mindfulness app and they had a quote of the day mm -hmm. with elaborations on it. And I would literally just copy paste the quote of the day into the community to share that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, Brandon, this is great. Where you, are you getting this from? I'm like, it's from an app. You know, I'm just, I was very transparent <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that. We weren't trying to pretend like you <laughs> you came up with it or anything like that. Correct. Which is good. That transparency, I think, is important. Yeah, I wasn't going to plagiarize these people's work, and it was a free app, too. And it was just eloquent, eloquently written. Mm -hmm. Now, a year later of me doing that every single day, of sharing it and, and, and sharing this content to people, the iPhone updated mm. and, the, and the app developer didn't update the app. Mm. So I couldn't access the app anymore. So I couldn't get the quotes. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, Oh my God, I've been doing this for every day for a year. Mm -hmm. Now I have to like, I was forced to find quotes online and then write about them mm. and then put that in the community. Yes. And then I thought to myself, all right, well now that I'm doing this and it's been like a couple of months of me doing it, why don't I just read quotes or read books mm -hmm. and just write about what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. And then as this evolved, I said, you know, why don't I just read what I'm writing mm. and use my voice? And then that then evolved into video. So it was the, the meetups consistently value forward, free, holding our standards of excellence while simultaneously sharing community over mm -hmm. about four and a half years, every yes. single day. And then just, hundreds and hundreds of people would show up and that, that was one of the, the community was my, the, my ability to get the job mm -hmm. with the corporate mindfulness training organization. And, um, you know, pe people want, pe people want to meet like-minded people and, uh, Shanghai is filled with a lot of expatriates and people mm -hmm. coming to reinvent themselves. So yeah, that's how we grew the community. That's, that's awesome, man. That's actually really similar to how I started, creating the Zen stoic meditations. Like I had a whole series of them that I made over a year ago, but it was basically like that. I'd find these quotes that I would read and then kind of journal about. And then I had a similar process. I was like, you know what? I, I journal and I get these great insights. Like, why don't I just read the quote and then elaborate and riff on it in the form of a meditation. And I created these guided meditations that were built upon you know, standing on the shoulders of giants that came before me. Mm. So I'd read the quote, kind of bring in some breathing exercise, some mindfulness exercise, and then elaborate on the quote. And that became the Zen Stoic micro meditations, as I used to call them, because they were like five minutes long. Yep. So, <laughs> so it was an interesting uh, how similar that process was. It's great, man. Yeah. It's, um, I think, I actually never thought about mindfulness being a Western concept. Mm -hmm. Like, I, pr I probably kind of knew it in the back of my head, but I never thought about it as like that being uh, actually different from Eastern philosophy, which, which is interesting that you bring it up. Uh, for you, obviously you've done some mindfulness in the corporate space, mindfulness training. What is, where does mindfulness play a role in the corporate space? And what kind of improvements have you seen with the people that you've worked with in that space? Sure. So in terms of, Eastern meditation and mindfulness, it's really evolved um, for mindfulness in the workplace. We have a couple of uh, sayings that lay the foundation mm -hmm. for the justification 
uh, an application of it. Yes. First, uh, your your most precious resource in this life is your time and attention. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And everything and everybody wants to take that away from you. Advertisers, uh, who, who, whatever, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, TikTok, <laughs> Instagram Reels. Uh, uh, it's their job to get your attention. Yeah, that's they're in the attention business. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah, they want to hook you. <laughs> in corporate mindfulness and just in mindfulness training in general, but this is how we portray it to corporations. Our attention affects our choices. Mm-hmm. Our choices affect our actions and our actions affect our results. Yes. Therefore, there's a direct correlation with high attention and high results. Mm-hmm. Basic mindfulness training is basic attention training. Yes. That lays the foundation for it. So when we were rolling out corporate mindfulness training in Shanghai and also in Hong Kong and in Beijing, uh, and in Louisiana and here in, here in Austin, we have a foundation of 20% of mindfulness training mm-hmm. and then 80% of various strategies to help employees and managers and leaders perform better in the workforce, mm. such as mindful meetings, uh, work-life balance training, uh, sleep training, um, cultivating what we call beginner's mind, mm. um, creativity, innovation training. And there are a lot of different modules that we had delivered in 10 week uh, settings where the basis of it is in the beginning, we're talking about focus and performance. Mm-hmm. Then we're moving into more of innovation and creativity. And now we're moving into more of softer skills such as, uh, emotional intelligence training or uh, uh, loving kindness training. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have foundational mindfulness training techniques for each type of module. And the real key in portraying mindfulness to those markets and those environments is the language. Mm-hmm every single way that we're portraying mindfulness to corporations is in a results oriented approach. Right. Cause that's what they're paying attention to. And that's what they care about. Correct. So increasing focus, increasing resilience, increasing leadership. What happens when people are burning out or people are getting laid off or they're quitting because of a pandemic mm-hmm. or because of hyperinflation, we need to double down on leadership. Mm. We need to take that time and understand how leadership's doing, how they're taking care of themselves, how are they cultivating resilience, and what are scientifically proven methods to mm-hmm. help to cultivate resilience and help with leadership styles, with cultivating empathy. Yes. The workforce now is very different than it was 20 years ago. You have millennials, 35-year-olds 30, coming in to leadership positions where they really want autonomy, mastery, purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a low power distance culture. The walls of the office are coming down. The cubicles are coming down. And a CEO's ability to be able to empathize with their team and be vulnerable 
Mm-hmm. Be human is really a high quality of a leader. Yes. And they see them for who they are. And these are all very, very high emotional intelligence skills. And it's coming from a place of mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion. Mm-hmm. So our job is to integrate that into these Fortune 500 companies, specifically at a leadership level. Yes. We hook them with performance and effectiveness with training the attention. Yes. Well, one thing I think is really cool about that is the idea of when people typically have a problem and they think I need to solve this problem. Normally they're not describing the problem, but they're describing a symptom. And oftentimes the real cause of the problems, whether that is a lack of morale, a lack of cohesiveness in the workplace or a lack of innovation and creativity a lot of the time, the actual cause is a lack of mindfulness, a lack of curiosity and understanding, a lack of empathy for one another. And instead, kind of everybody walking around feeling isolated with this kind of um, almost like this illusion of separation from each other, forgetting that they're all on the same team. And mindfulness is really the solution to that cause mm-hmm. rather than looking at, oh, let's solve the surface level thing that is that we think is affecting the results. And inevitably what I've noticed, especially in working with clients is that when they go through this pattern, they're starting to solve for the, for the problem that isn't. And thus they feel like they get even more lost and more frustrated through the whole process. Correct. So it sounds like what you're doing is really stepping in and going for the cause, going Mm -hmm. for the root of what's actually going on in, in the corporations. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, a corporation is like an organism mm-hmm. and there's there's so much interconnected interconnectedness within that organism mm-hmm. and it's so important that people, especially leadership, is acting from a place of selflessness. Yes. Not what's good for me, but what's good for the organization. And even more so, what's good as Marcus Aurelius would say, what's mm-hmm. good for the bee is good for the hive. Yes. Love that. So, <laughs> so I just want to throw that in there. Absolutely. So you, you, we have to act from a place as an organization, from a place of selflessness. So actually what's good for the organization is what's good for society. Mm-hmm. And how can we be useful to society? It, people, I really get triggered when people ask me the question, how can I make more money? Cause that's a lazy, that's a lazy <laughs> question. It really is. It is. A better question is, how can I be more useful? Mm-hmm. How can I give more value? How, yes. can, how can I solve more problems in society? Mm-hmm. And it, this is coming from a place of selflessness. Yes. And it's a, it's a higher value question, even if what you are after is money. The, the more you solve real problems that exist, that people want to be solved at this point in time, and the more leveraged the manner in which you do it, the more money you can ultimately make. But if you focus on just the money, what you're focusing on is just the byproduct of solving the problem, not actually solving the problem. So it's easy for people in businesses to create fake problems out there and then sell you the solution to those fake problems and thus not really <laughs> solve anything. Yep. And it becomes uh, a pathologized way of doing business and a pathologized way of operating in our society. Mm-hmm. So I think asking those questions uh, is a is a much better 
and more fulfilling way of doing business. Totally. So when, when you're practicing mindfulness meditation, Mm -hmm. or as we say in a corporate context, mindfulness training. Yes. When you sit and watch the mind Mm -hmm. on a reoccurring basis, things are going to happen. Yes. And, and realizations will occur whether you paint it as a key to mental effectiveness or a path to liberation Mm -hmm. or realizing your true self, your true nature, if properly taught on both of those frames, you will arrive at a similar destination on realizing the ultimate nature of your reality. Mm -hmm. The ultimate nature of reality is interconnectedness and interbeing is that we're not uh, this, this flesh vehicle just babbling about life, but everything is interconnected. You might be, the listener might be, uh, hearing this and say, yeah, 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 Brandon, I get that. I'm the moon and the stars and I, I, I'm Jupiter and I, I'm the Milky Way galaxy. And I, yeah, I, I know this conceptually. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But when you feel it on a regular basis, that's a totally different thing. And when you're operating from that place of interconnectedness and of your true nature, uh, it, insight arises. Mm-hmm. And with this insight, compassion arises yes and selflessness and a sense of responsibility mm-hmm. arises for your team and your team's team and this is really really great for an organization and typically they're going to make more money too because they're solving more problems yeah they're they're working more people. together yeah but we don't start our trainings that way i don't want to make that very clear. no of course not we, i we, mean <laughs> we start we might hint at that on 10 weeks into the journey Mm -hmm. because trust me we've done the opposite and had that kind of talk and people are like oh sounds great and then they don't show up (laughs) the second half of the training yeah uh, well i feel like a lot of a lot of people out there are stuck on the outcomes and the results that they want they're attached to the outcomes and results not necessarily realizing that it is in that process that those results come more effortlessly and less with gritting your teeth in order to get there. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is what you were mentioning there about, you know, people saying, well, I know that I'm connected with everything. I'm the moon and the stars and Jupiter and I'm, I'm all the plants and animals out there. Uh, I think what's interesting about that concept is there is a huge difference, like you were saying, between saying that and knowing it cognitively and then actually feeling it and living it. Yep. And it, it, it comes down you know, to the whole finger pointing at the moon thing, you know, that's, those words are just the pointing mechanism, Mm. but to actually experience it and to feel it like that's where it's at. So just talking about it isn't enough, you know, or to, you know, paraphrase from Bruce Lee, you know, willingness isn't enough. We must do. Mm -hmm. And it, I think being able to get somebody into an experience, like through the trainings that you facilitate is a really important way to do it. Like if we just put this in a book, it's not really going to cut through the same way and get to get to that leader who needs to implement it for sure, man. I mean, that's what modern mindfulness is all about. And I love explaining meditation and mindfulness to people who are like meditation. (laughs) That that, that's like my bread and butter. 
that person. I, I absolutely love, like, sit me down with that person. Let's have a cup of coffee. Yes. Let's talk about it. It's not going to be an argument. Right. It's just going to be <laughs> definitions. Yes. Okay. So, well, since you bring that up, what sure. what is your definition of meditation? And how would you describe it to somebody who's just learning about it for the first time? Sure. Well, it depends on the kind of person. So I'll use two separate people. I was talking to my friend Catherine the other day. Mm -hmm. She's a Chinese American, but her father's also Chinese American, but was born in China. Yes. And he was that generation of uh, right after the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. He was born around the 1950s. And he doesn't practice Buddhism and he, he, he doesn't practice meditation. And for for the most part, he's, he doesn't think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of Chinese people just don't think about it um, because w there are more important things to do, like making money or, or what have you. And this is, you know, it's not their fault. Uh, you know, you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it, you know, self-awareness and self-transcendence. This is a higher level need. It's okay. We've made money. Mm -hmm. Now we're comfortable. Now what? Yes. Right. That's right. So, her father, she tried to portray meditation to her, for her father, and she was saying to me, I cannot teach my dad meditation. He doesn't want to do meditation. Mm -hmm. And I said, what if you didn't call it meditation? What if you called it watching your mind or metacognition? Depends mm -hmm. on his the kind of person he is. If he's a scientific person, mm -hmm. uh, say, hey, dad, have you ever heard of metacognition? No, what's that? Well, we can become aware of our thoughts. We can become aware of our mind. Yeah, of course I knew that. Did you know that you can train that? And that'll allow you to have more focus and that'll allow you to have more energy. It depends. You have to speak his language. Now, for him, he's older. He probably wants more focus. He probably wants more energy. Mm. Um Maybe he really likes to read. Did you know that metacognition training allows you to read longer at a stretch or it can improve your chess game? Hmm. Huh. Oh, I didn't know that. I might check this metacognition stuff out. Yes. <laughs> so that's for an older generation using that type of terminology, really staying away from the word meditation. For somebody who is a spiritually minded individual, mm -hmm. it's, it's super easy basic meditation or traditionally known as shamatha is single pointed awareness or mm -hmm. calm abiding bis and resting your awareness on the breath yes that's the mother of all meditations that's where we start because if we cannot stabilize our attention the other meditations aren't as effective does that make sense yes so we have to be able to get to a place where we can effortlessly rest the awareness at the breath for 30 minutes at a stretch, then we can become acclimated with all of the other meditations in the world. Mm -hmm. The specific meditation that we specialize in is mindfulness-based meditation. Mm -hmm. So that is being in the present moment non-judgmentally yes. or focusing on what you choose to focus on, as I like to say. Mm -hmm. That can be with the breath, that can be with the body, that can be with the mind. About 14 years ago, we found out about neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So the mind is malleable, the, the brain is malleable, it changes and we can train it. The structure of the brain changes. Yes. That's proven. 
14 years ago. As a society, it's we're not, not on not, vi- not very long ago. <laughs> yeah, we're we're not on video, but I'm making kind of weird faces right now. <laughs> Maybe next one we can get some cameras in. Yeah, <laughs> fourteen years ago, uh, out of the hundreds and thousands of years of our species, mm-hmm. we figured out as a collective species, if you stop once a day and watch your mind, mm-hmm. really good for you. Yes, we didn't know that before, but now we know it, mm-hmm. and that is for the other person. So we have three people here. One is grandpa, Chinese man. Two is spiritually uh, minded fellow. And then three is a guy my age. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe he works on Wall Street. He's he's 35 years old. He's like, meditation. (laughs) Great. We found out as a society fellow that if you stop once a day, and watch your mind very good for you high level technique actually mm-hmm. that's difficult to do to sit there and not do anything for 10 minutes of stretch really not doing anything not listening to music but just sitting there and watching your mind mm-hmm. very difficult for some people even those guys on wall street or whoever the president of the united states definitely hard for donald trump that's mm-hmm. for sure Probably hard for Joe Biden too. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and most of them. High level technique. Easier to, instead of watch the, the mind, mm-hmm. watch the breath. Yes. See it happening to you. Mm-hmm. Now the awareness is shifted to the breath and you have a point of focus. Yes. The awareness will drift. Good. <laughs> You're going to think about all kinds of stuff. Good. It's so important to realize that the meditation Mm -hmm. is not causing you to think more. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When you're meditating, you now know your thinking. Yes. This is becoming aware of it. This is spectacular. Yes. This is fantastical. Mm hmm. Is now you know. And now you have a tool to deal with those thoughts which are happening to you. Yes. You're not doing it. It's happening to you. Mm-hmm. I was trying to sleep last night. Mm-hmm. My mind was busy. I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> it was happening to me. <laughs> I was thinking about all kinds of bizarre things last night. It wasn't you know, worrisome things. It was just like, I, I wonder where I can buy a bonsai tree or I wonder what, you know, wh- when will I purchase a dog or why should I even have to purchase a dog? Or what is it? Why do they say when you go to a dog pound, you are rescuing a dog? It's not like I took the dog out of a fire. I, I, I got the dog and I, they're like, take the dog <laughs> and I got it. And I'm thinking of bizarre things. And I have simultaneously this awareness of this dialogue saying, why am I thinking about all of this? Yes. What is this going on? But there's this awareness. Mm-hmm. I have a sense of control over this awareness. Yes. But you can this, change the direction. Yes. That I know. Mm-hmm. But this stream of thought that is occurring to me is as random, as chaotic, and I, it is as out of my control as my breath that's happening to me. Mm-hmm. 
It's happening to me. My heart is beating itself. It's happening to me. Mm-hmm. My eyes are seeing. It's happening to me. I'm hearing. I didn't sign up for this life. It happened to me. Mm-hmm. But for all I know, this awareness I can train, this consciousness I can train. Yes. And that's why meditation is so incredibly important. Now, I'll play the devil's advocate for your listeners. Mm-hmm. There are many ways to train the mind. Meditation is one of them. Yes. But we have to get to a place where we are training the one skill that separates us from all the other animals. Mm-hmm. We know we're thinking. I don't know why. I don't know why human beings have this capability, but we do. Mm-hmm. And when you're training in mindfulness-based meditation and, and many other meditations, you're fine-tuning that capability. Yes. So I'm super passionate about this stuff. You can't figure oh, out. Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating, right, to think about it like that, to think of the thoughts as uh, just a stream of consciousness. And it, it, what, what's interesting is that sometimes we, we share thoughts. And I think where we get into trouble is where we think one of those thoughts that's passing by is original and it's our own and it's unique Mm-hmm. And it's unique to us when the reality is a lot of the time many other people have those same thoughts and by observing it and directing the attention it's almost like tuning in to a certain pattern of thoughts mm-hmm. while you don't actually control the thoughts so one one thing that that kind of reminds me of is you're also a fan of stoicism totally so, so when we think about epictetus's dichotomy of control how has that integrated into mindfulness for you awesome question um, so just to break down the dichotomy, and I'm sure your, your listeners know this very, very well, but for, for those that don't, mm-hmm. we have what is in within our control and what we have a little bit of control over. Yes. And then what we have absolutely no control over mm-hmm. for all we know. Um, your beautiful dog right here, I cannot control the fact that he is sleeping. Mm-hmm or perhaps attempting to, but he's certainly chilling out. Yes. Um, I cannot control what you're doing and how, how you're sitting. Um, and if I did, you'd probably try to tap me out. <laughs> uh, that's another question. That's another conversation we can have. Yes. Uh, the correlations of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and stoicism and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of things that are outside of our control, mm-hmm. such as, for the most part, our thoughts. Now, our thoughts have, we have a little bit of control over them because we have this awareness of them and we have this awareness of where we're putting our attention and where we're bringing information in. Mm -hmm. So if you want to just pound some good information into you, listen to an audio book or I like this fellow I'm not going to say fellow anymore on this podcast. I keep saying that. I like this. I like the word. Yeah. I like this. I, I, I like I like this dude. Uh, and you guys might know him. Your listeners might know him. And for all I know, he might even listen to us. Akira mm-hmm. the Dawn. Mm. If you don't know who Akira the Dawn is, you need to go take a, take a trip down to Dripping Springs. Uh, and he is a gentleman who takes audio tracks of, let's say, Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. and puts a really cool really cool background music to it mm. and he just mixes it up and he's really really great at that 
Marcus Aurelius. I need to listen. Alan to this. Watts. <laughs> oh man, you you're gonna be a big fan of this guy. I mean, so I put that kind of music and that kind of dialogue. It's like if an audiobook and really cool beats made a baby. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Akira the Dawn does. And you've selectively chosen to take that information in and then you're going to hear that on repeat in your mind. Yeah. So you want to be really careful of the stuff that you're letting in to your mind. So you have some control over that, mm-hmm. what you're bringing in and what the stream of thought that is occurring to you, what's it playing. But for the most part, it's on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So we have a little bit of control over that. What we have full control over as far as we know, Sam Harris might not, he might think otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as we know, we have free will and control over our awareness. Yes. Our attention and where that goes. So that is under our control. Therefore, we should really practice fine tuning it mm-hmm. because what you do is what you become. Yes. And it's so, so important to be aware of where your attention is because that's where your time is going. And we, just like I said earlier, we have to protect our time and attention. And that's what basic mindfulness training does. So for the most part, that is underneath our control. So it's so, you know, the hardest part about the dichotomy of control is Mm -hmm. remembering it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's there for your disposal, but you have to remember it, and that's where a really great mindfulness practice comes in because you catch yourself thinking about that stupid conversation you had with this person who's being mean to you. Mm-hmm. You caught that thought. Oh, I'm reminiscing over what this guy said, and now you know you're thinking about it. Yes, and now you can do something about that. But for the most part that conversation's occurring and you don't know it's occurring. Mm-hmm. So you can't do anything about it. Right. So that's what it's I'm just, like. you're assuming that you're doing it. And Co- that, correct. And so, that's why you get stuck there. Yeah. So that's where a mindfulness practice becomes really powerful because you're protecting your mind. You're protecting the mental fortress. Mm. That's interesting. I always, uh, w- one thing I started doing recently um, as a form of meditation and reflection is, basically journaling while I have those crazy random thoughts happening in my mind. If I've noticed that they're recurring and I've had them before and this is either the second time or, you know, so on and so forth that I've thought of the same thing. What I started doing is I started writing them down and watching them in the form of writing and kind of directing where they go and directing my awareness to paying attention to the flow of it. And I notice every time I've done that, I've always worked through whatever the emotion was that was attached to that thought or associated to that thought. And let's say I was thinking about a conversation that I had with somebody where maybe there was some feelings of regret, some feelings of resentment. The way that I've always looked at it is if I'm feeling this emotion, then I'm going to keep feeling it until I understand what it's trying to tell me, what it's trying to communicate to me. And through that process of journaling and, you know, meditating in that format, I'm able to understand and clear the thought and then become very, very present once I've gotten the message that my mind or body has been trying to convey to me. Mm. 
And I know the Stoics were big fans of journaling. Huge. Now, Marcus Aurelius would have a heart attack if he knew we could do it like this. And <laughs> some of your listeners might really appreciate it. Um, I hate journaling. I hate putting pen to paper because it hurts my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like writing. I don't like typing. I like doing this, talking. Yeah. So I was standing in the iPhone store three and a half years ago in downtown Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And I was buying a wireless keyboard. Yes. Because I saw Mr. Ferris, Tim Ferris. He was just talking about the having a wireless keyboard and like typing onto your phone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, hey, that's a great idea. You know, keep that with me. It'll remind me to write more. And I was looking for a keyboard. The This is like a huge plug for Apple Store employees. But <laughs> yeah, she was really honest. And I appreciate an honest salesperson. She walked up to me and said, what are you looking for? I said, a wireless keyboard. She said, what kind of phone do you have? I said, I have an iPhone 10 or iPhone whatever it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, you don't need that. I'm like, what do you mean? Are you trying to use some reverse psychology salesperson tactic on me? Mm-hmm. Like, no, no. You just use a dictation software on the iPhone. And I, I dropped my phone and I, and I like ran out of the <laughs> store. I, I realized I dropped my phone. I came back and grabbed it and, and ran out <laughs> uh, because I, I realized that I could write by dictating. Yes. So what I really like to do from time to time is not just sit down for like an hour or, or like fill out four pages of morning pages, mm-hmm. which is like a, a barrier to entry of 30 minutes, which mm-hmm. is huge for a beginner in journaling. Yeah, it is. So I really like to ask myself this question, what would it look like if it were easy? Mm. And if it were easy, I just sit down from time to time and dictate onto my notes mm-hmm. for two minutes and just what's on my mind. Mm-hmm. Today, this guy did this, and this happened, and da, 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 and it's just writing it down, writing it down. There's going to be errors, there's going to be typos, all this kind of stuff, and I don't worry about that. I'm yes. just writing for uh, output here, not, yeah. not quality. So this is like kind of a little tool that I've, I've realized over the years. Um, it's You have to do this in a, in a place where you're not going to be disturbed. Of course, yeah. But it's super, super useful because sometimes putting pen to paper – you know, people's writing style is very slow. Maybe they haven't written in a while. But if you can just talk into your phone, it's very therapeutic as well. Big time. Yeah, I, I don't like the uh, pen to paper myself for that. Yeah. I, I like pen to paper when I'm taking notes on something I'm learning. And I like to physically write it. If I'm actually like trying to retain the thing. When I'm doing the journaling, I typically type. And most of the time, I actually type on my phone. Mm-hmm. Because... F- uh, I, what's interesting is that like, I'll sit here on this podcast and I'll talk and I'll just go no problem. But when I'm like journaling, the dictation doesn't work for me. And I actually got to like sit there and write it and like be quiet on the outside, but type everything out or type it out on my phone. And I type because when I write by hand, it feels like my hand can't keep up with my thoughts. Like it can't like keep track of where they're going. Um, but I, First of all, thank you for, for saying that you hate journaling. I feel like that's an unpopular opinion, but I appreciate your sincerity and transparency on that. <laughs> well, I don't hate, I like the output. Like right, right. No, the output. But I don't like the process of putting pen to paper for 20 minutes at a time. Right. And I, and I think that in this space specifically, like people glorify journaling as like, this is the thing that you need to do, especially if you practice any kind of stoicism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I think the importance of kind of what we're talking about here is like the output itself. Like that's, that's where the, yeah. the magic is. Yeah. It's, and sometimes just even observing the thought or observing the feeling that you're having causes it to dissipate. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes just like a person, they just want to be heard and understood mm-hmm. and then they'll go. Yeah. It's not, it's not jumbling around in your head anymore. So whether you're like somebody like me who, from time to time, you'll dictate on your phone for five to ten minutes, uh, maybe just starting at two minutes, or you want to put pen to paper, the output's going to be very similar. Mm-hmm. And also you have to realize what what kind of ways do you think? Yes. Do you think better through writing or through speaking? For me, I think better through speaking. Yes. So it just depends on that learning style as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it's important to embrace what your learning style is mm-hmm. in these. They're like I even relate that to when it comes to absorbing information. You know, I've always heard, well, you know, you can read, you can learn to read faster than you can listen. So it's better to read. But for me, I can't sit there and read a book <laughs> and absorb the same way I absorb an audio. Mm-hmm. Might be slower, but I'll do it more consistently mm-hmm. and I'll learn better just because at least the way I'm oriented, my preference is audio mm-hmm. and I'll be able to repeat it, riff on it, regurgitate it, like whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. But if I hear it, it seems to stick. And I think being able to embrace what your preferences are, what your quirks are, what your, uh, your styles of learning and absorbing information are, I think is really, really important because I feel like oftentimes people resist what their natural style is in order to go for the trending style or the accepted style or the one that has been taught to them by somebody that they respect rather than kind of tuning in and listening to themselves for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that all amounts to self-awareness to figure out what your learning style is, uh, to see how you uh, take in information. For me, I'm the same. I don't, I don't like to read, but I started to, read just two minutes uh, at night Mm. as a vehicle to fall asleep. Yes. Specifically fiction or really, really light philosophy. And uh, I cannot read Marcus Aurelius before I go to bed. No, you just start racking your brain. (laughs) Yeah, I can't do it. Um, I can read Seneca before I go to bed because he's kind of long-winded. Yes. Uh, but Marcus Aurelius is really straight to the point. Uh, and, and <laughs> it's I just, very direct. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't do that right before bed, but I started just to do two minutes, two to five minutes a night of mm. reading as, not for reading, but as a vehicle to fall asleep. Yes. And I started that maybe five to eight years ago. Yes. And it's taken that long to have that two minutes evolve into 30 minutes every night. Mm-hmm. But it was just a little bit. And I mean, like if, if anybody out there, you're trying to cultivate a habit, please, if you're looking for a sign, this is your sign, be patient. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just two minutes, one minute here or there over many, many months, maybe if you're like me, many, many years, that might roll into a full-out journaling practice or a full-out sitting there and reading yes Um, for the most part if it's not pre-bed fiction or light philosophy i'm the same as you the whole hour drive here i was listening to an audiobook and that's Mm -hmm. how i try to consume as well because there's so many uh transitionary times or 15 minutes here or there it adds up really fast Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's such a, an easy way to take things in mm-hmm. by audio. At least that's my preference, right? Like I'm not always going to sit there and read something, but I'll listen to something while I'm driving or I'll listen to something while I'm cleaning up the house or doing some light work, you know, answering emails and whatnot. I'll listen to like an Alan Watts lecture or I'll listen to a new audio book on something I want to learn. And it's just a, a great way to kind of take things in um, rather than idealizing and glorifying the process of actually sitting and reading a book. You just do what works for you. you yeah. Do what, what will actually allow you to do the practice. And I, I'm glad that you said something about, about habits and implementing new habits because I feel like if you make a habit hard to do or if you make it something that is this big undertaking, mm-hmm. you might have some steam to do it for about a week. Yep. But the moment it, it ceases to be enjoyable and fulfilling and starts to feel like a chore, you will drop it like instantly. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel, I feel like that's a good way to enter into something. A couple minutes here. Yeah, you can't stack it with other habits either. So if you're, you know, it's the new year and you're mm-hmm. like, I'm going to learn to meditate and also run a mile in the morning yes. <laughs> and also do yoga in the morning, you're going to fail. Yeah. But if you just say, I'm going to meditate for two minutes every single morning for the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's something there that could evolve into something very impactful in two years time. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's, Making, number one, what would this look like if it were easy? Mm -hmm. That's easy. Number two, making the barrier to entry so easy that following through is inevitable. Yeah. Like you want to follow through. Yeah. You feel compelled towards it rather than I have to push myself and muster up the effort to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So that is so integral for making new choices um, and staying with things. I'm also starting to see a pattern with courses that I'm taking. There's a lot of research out there Mm -hmm. of having accountability groups of a maximum of five to six people. Mm. Because once you hit a critical mass of like 10 people, they're like, huh, doesn't matter if I show up. Nobody's going to notice. Yeah. But if it's like six, you know, somebody's going to notice. Right. But if it's just me and you, that also can fall apart pretty fast. But if there's three, Three is kind of three to six is kind of the magic number there. So you have like a little pod or cohort. Mm. I'm in a coaching certification program called PQ Coach or Positive Intelligence Coach Training. Um, with it, one of the requirements is you have to be in a pod mm-hmm. with three to four other people. So it works twofold. One, it helps us be accountable for the duration of the seven week training. Yeah. Two, it's great for their marketing. They weren't going to accept it. They're like, you have to find. To, uh, to two to three other people that can join you on yes. this journey. Otherwise we're not going to let you in. Interesting. To yeah. So I was like, wow, it's, it's great marketing. That's, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Not. It is great marketing. Cause if you want to do it, you're going to, you know, go and ask people who, you know, you want to, to share that space with. Yeah. So I, I you know, I had to apply for the program mm-hmm. and then I got accepted. It's a free program. It was a grant and I got accepted, but I had to find, three uh, three to four other people, two to three other people to join. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, they weren't going to let me on the program. Uh, so that's number one. And then I saw another correlation with this with uh, a mindfulness teacher or, or a new type of mindfulness teacher called a non-dual mm-hmm. mindfulness teacher, Locke Kelly. 
L-O-C-H-K-E-L-L-Y. Fascinating individual. And in his six-week course, which I've also enrolled in simultaneously, they recommend to have what they call peer groups. They're mm. not pods or accountability groups. They call them peer groups of no more than three to six people. Yes. I'm like, uh-huh, there's a little bit of a thing here. Because I've seen this with a lot of these challenges. It's like, mm. 30-day challenge, let's do it. And there's 20 people trying the challenge. Yeah. And then people are dropping out like like flies. Yeah, it's but so true. there's something really magical. And I don't know, this, this is probably some science out there, some research out there for this. But that small group, intimate group of three to six people. Mm-hmm. And just having that. So if you're trying to uh, have a stoic practice mm-hmm. or a meditative practice, try to find an account- accountability group of three to six people mm-hmm. and show up on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis. Because if you don't show up, th- th- those guys are going to know. Oh, yeah. when, when you're like seven people, it's like, okay, uh, Jason's not here today. I, pff, all right, well, maybe he'll come next time. Mm-hmm. But if it's three to four or three to six people, now we're down to five. It's like, oh, what's going on? This is falling apart. Uh, And then it's kind of tribal maybe, but it's just really interesting in terms of accountability. Right, because one person falling off in a small setting like that is enough to trigger some kind of response from everyone else to notice it. Correct, but larger, no. Larger, they can like kind of drift off into obscurity. It reminds me of that Homer Simpson meme where he like, you know, goes into the bushes. (laughs) He just kind of hides away. Right. (laughs) Yeah, nobody will know about it. Exactly. Nobody will know about it. So uh, speaking of of trainings and cohorts, uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you about before we begin to wrap up is uh, about training mindfulness teachers. I was hoping you'd ask me about Yes, so I'm, <laughs> I'm actually excited to talk about this. Sure, man. So uh, how did that come up, right? I know you've, yeah. you've trained individuals. Now you want to train actual mindfulness teachers to be able to facilitate these, yeah, yeah. these practices. Yeah. So where did that come from? Yeah, so um, I started teaching mindfulness in Shanghai because it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So it kind of pissed me off. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? This doesn't exist. It should. Yes. This is China. Um, like, let, let's start something. So I had to start that, and I did. And I always said the best part about what I, what I was doing is nobody's done it before. Right. And the worst part about what I was doing is nobody's done it before. <laughs> so I was very lonely as a mindfulness teacher in Shanghai, China. There weren't that many. There were some people who were up and coming, and people for every – one of my classes with 25 people, five were there to just copy my stuff and try to do what I was doing. Right. And it's the culture and it's come from Confucian culture of uh, IP and just stealing stuff. And they didn't want to really confront me about it, but I saw what they were doing and I was like, wait, wait, let me help you. (laughs) Let me help you steal my stuff. Let me help you steal it, this properly. Yeah, let me help you steal this properly. And like, like if you want to do it, like let's let's team up. Or like, how can I, how can I help you talk to companies or, or this, mm-hmm. that, or the other? So I started doing that naturally in Shanghai. And a lot of the Chinese people, they didn't, they, they were like, this is strange. This guy's a weirdo. He's my competitor. Why would why would he mm-hmm. be helping me? And he, they didn't. Some of them did, but most of them didn't understand that this is coming from a place of selflessness of wanting to solve a problem. I don't give a a shit about me. I mean, I love myself. 
But <laughs> I don't care about me in this situation. It's a, I, I'm trying to solve a problem here. Mm-hmm. And that was what's going on in Shanghai. I remember I, I purchased Shanghai mindfulness, Shenzhen mindfulness, uh, Hong Kong mindfulness, Guangzhou mindfulness, China mindfulness.com, all those domains. Mm-hmm. You know, we were going to make an empire there, but it's not my fight. Right. You know, so that's one of the reasons why I left, but I'm still doing that work and we still have a good community, a lot of team members there. I went to Shenzhen. Somebody wanted to start a Shenzhen mindfulness. I came there, trained her up, was very, very valued for it. And then poof, she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Just like a, she had a little smoke bomb. And then poof. <laughs> it was amazing. Yes. And then six months later, she had a very, very similar course like mine and would not contact me. I was like, hmm, how fascinating. Yes. And the, the nature of the course wasn't complicated. Mm-hmm. It was a very simple uh, 30-day challenge. Mm-hmm. Anybody could make it. Yes. But how do you teach it? How do you market it? How, how do you work with the students individually? All that stuff she did not know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the attitudes to have when you're with students? So... She didn't want to have that conversation. Anyway, I was already starting to train other mindfulness teachers that I didn't know it. I got here. I had no idea about the mindfulness industry in America. Holy guacamole. Mm -hmm. There are mindfulness teachers all over the place. There are thousands and thousands of them. They're pumping them out in certifications like like wildfire. And somebody might think, oh, this is bad. This is really bad. But actually, a lot of those certifications are Mm -hmm. world-class. Two-year certifications, you have to go on a retreat. They're quite vigorous, especially the MBSR certifications coming out of Brown University, mm-hmm. short for mindfulness-based stress reduction. Anyway, <clears throat> I did a keynote for Chevron um, about three years ago Yes, uh, in front of a bunch of uh, subseat mechanical engineers about mindfulness and mental effectiveness. And about a year later, uh, one of them quit. Because of my keynote. Yes. Uh, so Chevron probably didn't like that, but uh, she realized that she didn't want to be in the gas and oil industry anymore. Mm-hmm. And she reached out. She was like, I want to be a mindfulness teacher. I said, great. Here are some certifications. Sign up, enroll in that. And then once you have, I'll teach you how to make a living out of this stuff. Mm. So she did that. And I started to train her. And she'd always ask me, Brandon, how can I repay you? How can I reciprocate? I said, relax. You're paying me now by letting me train you. Mm. So I train her very similar to how I train a thousand people in Shanghai for free in one year. Train her for 20 hours. Yes. Totally for free. So I taught her how to put up meetups together, um, how to contact other community leaders in the area, how to price the meetups, how to offer classes, all of this stuff, and more the infrastructure behind it, not the content content. And now she's pivoted away from mindfulness training and more into something called pandemic processing, which is really interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Super, super intelligent. Uh, uh, I believe she's a chemical engineer. Yes. So long story short, I then started to go on Facebook and Facebook's blocked in China. So Facebook was very new to me mm-hmm. um, a year ago. Actually, about eight months ago. Yes. And I kept getting advertised to for mindfulness teacher certification programs. Mm. I was like, I don't need this, but um, these people are going to talk to me for free. Yeah. I was like, sure, I'll talk to the founder of this thing for free. Mm -hmm. And hey, maybe I'll sign up if he's good. 
So I talked to one gentleman. I'm not going to name names because this guy wasn't all too nice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I signed up and uh, he, he, I signed up for the call. I talked to him and he's like, Brandon, you don't really need my certification. Um, you know, you're already teaching. I don't know how I can help you. And I said, I don't know where this came from. I guess it's kind of the business mind. I said, how many of your teachers are doing this work full time? And he said, I don't know. I said, do you think you should? He said, yeah. I mean, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Mm. Okay. Can you find that out for me? And then he did some research and he was like 10%. Okay. So you're certifying people to be meditation teachers and you certified thousands and thousands of people. And out of all of those, 10% of them are able to make a livelihood out of what you're training. That means there's a 10% success rate in training these teachers. And he put me on a webinar to train all of their teachers. Hmm. And he said, hey, if there's a demand, we had about 30 teachers, he said, if there's a demand, we'll roll out a 10-week course. And they loved it. They ate it up. I, I was talking about growing communities, pricing classes, uh, networking, all for specifically mindfulness teachers. Huge demand. We did a survey, very positive. Mm-hmm. And then same thing, smoke bomb, poof, he disappeared. Mm. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I tried to get the man on the phone, wouldn't do it. Hmm. Last thing I saw of him, he just had his jaw open and he saw the demand for it. And I was talking to him and he was like, <gasps> people want this. And he just disappeared. And for all I know, he, he went and, you know, hired somebody and, and, and did that on himself. So I started doing some research and I started contacting every single legitimate mindfulness training certification in the United States. Mm-hmm. Very niche, very strange. I know. Uh, I understand I'm a weirdo, uh, but I contacted them. I asked them the same thing. How many people are doing this full time? And they said, none. Mm. And I said, so you have a 0% success rate. I mean, these are pretty high level people that I'm talking to. And I'm like, I'm poking them. I was like, so you're not succeeding in your certification program because people can't make a livelihood out of this work. And I think a lot of coaches are probably it's resonating. A, it's uh, it's very similar in the coaching world. I yeah. mean, the if you are able to coach full-time, that is a rarity. It's, right. a, it's a pretty big achievement for a person to be able to do because there there's not a lot of training out there. If if you're doing legitimate coaching, you're not just selling info products or, you know, getting people into your funnel kind of thing. <laughs> but if you're doing legitimate coaching, it's there are not as many as you would think doing it full time. Exactly. So for teaching mindfulness meditation, we saw this as a really big problem. Mm-hmm. And I then started contacting meditation teachers on LinkedIn, hopping on the phone, just saying, how can I help you? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Started offering the service for a really, really low rate. Then that then evolved into a higher rate. Um, that's 80% of what I do to this day. Uh, we started to contact organizations. We're in talks with Harvard Medical School. Beautiful. Brown University. Uh, we have a workshop, 90 minutes scheduled for October 10th with University of California, Los Angeles, and all 500 plus of their graduates. This Saturday, I'll be training about 60 certified mindfulness teachers of, from a two-year program called the Mindfulness Training Institute. 
and it's rolling, man. Um, and that's awesome. <laughs> the, the one thing that sucks about what I'm doing is I don't know who anybody else is doing it. And the one thing that's awesome about what I'm doing is I don't know anybody else is doing it. And if anybody is listening to my words right now, if you know somebody who's specifically helping mindfulness teachers do their work full time, please contact me at modernmindfulness.com because we need help. And we believe that this is some of the world's most important work, mm -hmm. teaching mindfulness, compassion, and selflessness. So we want to equip these mindfulness teachers with the necessary skills to create a livelihood out of this work. Yes. And they're not ripping people off and they're doing this in an ethical way, in a professional way. So all of these certification programs, they're great at teaching them how to teach, mm -hmm. but they're not teaching anything about the business. Right. And it's important to be able to create a livelihood, especially if it's something that you're good at, something that you're called to. Correct. And, uh, before we, we begin to wrap up, a couple things I wanted to point out about kind of your journey in teaching teachers how to actually create a livelihood out of this. Mm -hmm. there, there are two Zen Stoic principles that I talk about a lot. Uh, one of them is, well, the first one that I'll mention is you not staying in Shanghai to do this because it's not your fight. Mm -hmm. And I remember once on a coaching call, I said to a client, you know, leadership is about being where you're needed most and having the awareness to know what that is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes while something can be a very noble cause, it might not be your noble cause. So knowing where to be, I think is a really important concept to, to keep in mind. And secondly, to be the source of what you seek to experience rather than seeking a source to experience that thing. You became the source for people to be able to learn this, this craft, this technique and how to actually turn it into a livelihood. And I think when you are the source of what you seek, you have that double-edged sword where nobody else is doing this. And that's a bad thing and a good thing at all the same time. <laughs> so I think, you know, it, 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 you run into that type of thing. So it, it's a very interesting journey that you've been on and I'm very excited to see kind of where this goes. Um, you know, I'm intrigued about the mindfulness training that you do now. <laughs> now that I'm hearing more about it, I think that's really cool. So the last question that I'll ask you, and I ask this of all my guests in some way or another, but you've clearly learned a lot on your journey, right? A lot of experiences, a lot of lessons, a lot of philosophy. If you were to have the unfortunate circumstance of losing all, of, uh, all that you've gained in terms of knowledge, but you could keep one principle to essentially emerge back from, what would that be? Zen. Zen. <laughs> I know it's the most <laughs> vague answer possible. I mean, I get it, but. <laughs> if, I, if I had to choose one principle, it would be Zen. Um, I mean, I, it's just like, I'm not trying to patronize you, bro. Uh, but that's the reality is that I am a Zen stoic. Um, mm. So I would go towards those philosophies. Um I guess I could say Zen is meditation. Mm -hmm. Zen is now. So meditation. And that's where it all began. Yes. With meditation of being aware of myself. Yes. And through that self-awareness, all of these other things came because I just started to know myself by cultivating awareness upon myself. Mm. So for a more specific answer, meditation, mindfulness meditation, watching the mind, because that's the beginning. Yes. Yeah.
I love it. Brandon, thank you so much for being on the Zen Stoic Path. It's been great having you. Thank you very much. Pleasure's mine.